We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens, and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. And if you're an Apple Podcast person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcasts app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. This week on the Sunday debate, we're asking how is Prime Minister Narendra Modi shaping the future of India? This is the third episode of our new series, India at 75, exploring the biggest questions facing India 75 years after its independence. Our host is Kavita Puri, journalist and author of the critically acclaimed book, Partition Voices, which explores the experiences of British people originating from the subcontinent who witnessed the partition of India in 1947. Here's Kavita with more. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Prime Minister Narendra Modi. (laughs) 
Welcome to the third instalment of India at 75, a new series from Intelligence Squared examining the direction of India 75 years after its independence. Today we'll be looking at the significance of the country's Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, and how he's shaping India's future. Joining me is Shruti Kapila, Professor of Indian History and Global Political Thought at Cambridge University. She's the author of Violent Fraternity, Indian Political Thought in the Global Age and a columnist for Print India. And from Delhi, Vinay Sitapati, Associate Professor in Political Science and Legal Studies at Ashoka University. He's the author of two books, the first, a biography of P.V. Narasimha Rao, and the second is India Before Modi, published by Hearst. I wanted to ask both of you, uh, Modi has now been in power for eight years since 2014, could potentially, or many people argue, will be re-elected again in 2024 for a third term. How significant a figure is Narendra Modi in India's history? Shruti, if we may begin with you. Well, thank you. I think um, though Modi has disrupted uh patterns of India's democracy. He seems to me someone who is very self-consciously aware of his role in history. In particular, in the run-up to his election in 2014, uh, he cast himself as an anti-Nehru, Nehru being the founding figure of uh, post-colonial India, of independent India. And Nehru has been synonymous with independent India and the political settlement that India had after the British left. So in his speeches up until that time, his view was very much opposed to Nehru. And since then, he's, his politics, his the way in which he has actually run the country, uh, he seems to be, you know, uh, I suppose inspired, be one way to put it, uh, by uh, Indira Gandhi, uh, India's last populist authoritarian uh, prime minister from the mid-70s. So he is, uh, he is very self-consciously aware of history, but I think it would be fair to say that he's also unprecedented in the ways in which he is conducting his politics and the way he's reshaping India, on which we'll talk more. Vinay, is that how you see it? Unprecedented in his conduct in reshaping India? I'd say that. And um, Professor Kapila began by talking about India's first prime minister, Nehru. The founding idea of India, which is Nehru's idea of India, was based on three different strands. Um, and in some sense, Nehru's um, Modi is a challenge to many of them. The first strand is that for Nehru and the Nehruvian idea of India, democracy was more than just elections, right? It was the importance of counter-majoritarian institutions like the judiciary, like the media. And I think the first break from that is really Indira Gandhi, um, Nehru's daughter, who is quite authoritarian in, in her politics, even though she was um, electorally very successful. And I think Nehru, um, Modi has taken that to an extreme. Um, for Modi, democracy is about elections. Um, he doesn't take the media seriously, especially the English media seriously at all. Um, you know, parliament, the legislature, um, the judiciary, all of them are secondary to the importance on winning elections. So I think that's one way in which Modi is unprecedented. Again, on democracy, it's in scale because the break begins with Nehru's daughter. The second Nehruvian idea was that the importance of the state in transforming economy and the society. And I always thought that was my first book, that Narsimara was a break from this, um, that the state would retreat a little bit from reshaping the economy and society 
But under Modi, the Indian state is back. So it's back to the old Nehruvian idea that the Indian state will be the vanguard of transforming India. But where I think Modi is really unprecedented is in secularism, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, Nehru was suspicious of a Hindu majority India becoming a Hindu majority state, right? So he was well aware that most Indians are religious, most Hindus are extremely religious. He didn't want the state to reflect that. And I think Modi is unabashed in his idea that the state must reflect the mores of the Hindu majority. He has no problem paying for where the government pays for renovation of temples. For example, he inaugurates those temples. Um, Nehru would not have done any, any of that. So I think it's on this third strand, the relationship between the majority religion and the state, that Modi is really unprecedented. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's that's a good summary. And uh, I think uh, I would also put it in a slightly global context in the sense that he is unprecedented in the sense that he preempts many of the features you will see in Trump. So, of course, you know, you have Gideon Rachman's book on the age of the strong man, which goes from, you know, Xi Jinping to Erdogan to, to, to Modi to even Johnson, arguably. But I think, uh, I mean, I think what is more comparable are the two mass democracies of really uh, India and, and America uh, in terms of sheer scale and in terms of the kind of shift we have seen in popular discourse and the kind of a kind of leader that has become that has actually really um, uh, fashioned themselves as anti-establishment, and I think that's really what uh, when I talked about, as it were, not caring for the media and and the like. Modi, in a way, starts all the stuff of going directly to peop the people via social media before Trump. Trump does that. But the key point here is that Modi, uh, I would use the word, there was a malevolent hypocrisy in his uh, run-up in 2012, 13, and 14, where he actually cast himself as an anti-establishment figure who had come from rags to riches, literally someone who had sold uh, tea at a tea stall in a in a in a regional uh, railway station in Gujarat to you know scaling the heights of political power in India. He sold himself as that as that figure against, as it were, the establishment of whether it was the Nehru family or whether it was the liberal uh, intelligentsia or the liberal establishment of the judiciary and various other organs of the state. But what was clear, and this is where I think it is very different from America, that this was a double speak. This was the ushering in of a political discourse of Hindu first India. This is unprecedented in India because it was not just Nehru who wanted a, a kind of equidistant uh, distance from all, uh, all religions in India. In fact, at the time of partition, it was very clear. I mean, as a historian, one has read this, uh, you know, there was very little, though Hindu majoritarians were f f around at that time from the 1920s, in fact, they were really a fringe element. They were at best secretive and at best considered to be so far out fringe to have no political resonance in India. And I think that's really what has been upstaged in India. That is the overturning we have seen with the Modi mandate because the BJP, uh, Modi's party, had of course had a mandate uh, earlier, uh, 10 years prior to Modi's own victory. But this is a new India uh, this is a word that uh, Nehru, uh, uh, Modi himself uses. And it's an, a, an India in which it's a Hindu first, unashamed Hindu first agenda over and above even economic reforms or any of the other things that, you know, ushered India into the global age in the last 20, 30 years. 
And Vinay, briefly, um, Shruti speaks about Hindu first. Tell us how that uh, ideology became mainstream. So the, in the book I write, India Before Modi, I argue that the idea came about in the 1920s. Uh, and it's the time in which not just the idea of a, of a Hindu, a consolidated Hindu identity, Hindus are 80% of India, but they are also divided by caste, religion, uh, region, language, etc. Right. So the need for unifying Hindus as a vote base began in the 1920s at the same time in which you see this, um, you know, the creation of Tamil subnationalism, um, you know, Muslim uh, subnationalism or nationalism in the in the subcontinent is also around that time. Um, and at least my sense is that that begins with the introduction of elections. Now, the British introduced limited elections by the late 19th century, but 1920s is really the time in which the British, under British India, introduced these large-scale national elections. And the, the problem with sorry, elections I'm, I'm sorry, India, I'm sorry, we're just going to have to be factually correct. The first election is a limited franchise provincial election in 1935, uh, after the Act of India, 1935, 1936. So there are no large-scale elections until 1950 in India, certainly not national. So please correct no, there, that. No, there were three elections in the 1920s. Of course, they were nothing like the 1951 elections, of course, right? So it's not that everybody had the right to vote. So, but there's no, there's no question. But for the first time in the 1920s, again, in a limited way, but for the first time, you have a sense that numbers constitute power. And I think that's a very important and new idea that comes in India. And suddenly, different ethnic groups and different ethnic entrepreneurs are trying to recategorize their ethnic groups in order to conjure up the majority. The idea of Hindu nationalism is that 80% of India are Hindus. If you vote together, you get a democratic majority. That's, basic, that's the core idea of Hindu nationalism. Then it's not that they've been unsuccessful until Modi. In 1967, for example, the Hindu Nationalist Party, the precursor of the BJP, which was the Jansang, uh, was the second largest party in India by vote share. Uh, so this story is a long time in the coming. Uh, but certainly the scale of the success of Hindu nationalism, right? The fact that it's sort of traversed to the east and the south, the fact that it today represents a rainbow coalition of a variety of Hindu castes, I think Modi has played an important role in that. So that, I think that, that, that speaks to, as it were, the formal rise of majority uh, rule and how majority groups uh, are always uh, can, you know, the, the story then should be, the question should be the opposite. Why has it taken 70 years for a Hindu first party to emerge uh, as dominant in India? And for that, there's an actually a reason going back into Indian society and on the way in which the question of Hindu Muslims in India or the minority question in India, as I show in my book, is triangulated with the caste question. And you cannot now dismiss that as just a kind of a social issue because castes were ma made into a political category uh, with the largest affirmative action program in the world in 1950 with India's constitution. And here the idea was that people who had been historically uh, been, been oppressed uh, had to, as it were, be brought up onto the same competitive field. And India's multi-party democracy, so I don't date it teleologically all the way back to 1920. I date the rise of Hindu national Hindutva or political Hinduism or majoritarianism 
only to actually the early 1990s or the late 1980s when you have multi-party democracy in effect in India. And because up until that, in the first 30, 35 years, give or take with smaller other oppositions, notably the communists, uh, the Congress party was a political, uh, had political monopoly over India's uh, India's democracy. And in the eight, late 80s, with actually uh, the emergence of multiple caste politics in India, because of affirmative action becoming a political issue in India very much again today, uh, that you have... Uh, you have, as it were, the BJP uh, coming in to unite the so-called so-called fissiparousness within Hindu society uh, via a temple movement, which is incredibly uh, successful in galvanizing uh, the Hindu, the BJP, uh, with a with a majority vote share. It takes twenty years. It's very arduous. Their rise has not been automatic. It is not automatic that just because India is majority Hindu that the BJP will be the ascendant party. Even today, less than 40% of India's vote share is with the BJP. So I think this is what complicates and makes India's democracy very competitive, which is also what makes Modi a kind of a different phenomenon from from, uh, his predecessors, because he is trying to unsettle the rules of the game, whether in terms of caste, whether in terms of uh, democratic institutions, and above all, really scaling up himself as synonymous with the idea of India. So I would worry, and my final point would be that I would actually worry now or think very, uh, uh, the, the great question that is going to come up is that does the BJP really have a life after Modi, because it is now, you know, he has equated the idea of new India, the, the, the state, uh, and indeed the party is diminished. Uh, all, I mean, th- there's a kind of total kind of absorption uh, uh, and saturation of all what stands in India is equated with Modi. Well, it is a great question, and we'll come back to that yeah. at the end. But I want to look at the economy, because when Modi began his te- first term, the economy was the world's 10th largest economy. In seven years, it's grown 40% of the biggest economies. Only China's done better over the same period. And the IMF now predicts by 2027, India will be the world's fifth largest economy. Now, of course, and you both may reference this, there have been ups and downs, notably demonetization, which saw growth drop. But but what were the main issues facing Modi when he came into office? And, and just tell us, Vinay, how he responded. Well, let's uh, focus specifically on the economy and welfare schemes, right? Um, you're absolutely right, Kavita, that, you know, the, you know, the general story of India in the last 10, 15 years has been a good one. Um, India recently overtook Britain as the fifth largest economy in the world in terms of size. And as you say, by 2027, Morgan Stanley predicts that it will be the third largest economy in the world. What you've also seen in the last decade, that some of the UPA time as well as the Modi time, um, is that there's been a reduction in inequality, right? So... The oddly enough, while growth under Modi has not been as good, for example, as the first BJP government in the 90s and 2000s, or even the the the, the last Congress government, um, in e- consumption inequality, for example, has been uh, better. Infrastructure projects have hugely changed. There's been spectacular reductions in poverty in the last 15 years. Spectacular, right? And so, in in some sense, Modi's genius is that this general modernization and improvement in India, general, right? Not attributable just to him, 
Many state governments do a good job. The UPA government before him also did a good job when it came to welfare schemes. But Modi's genius is that the general modernization taking place in India, he takes credit for it, right? Economic growth in India has been high for a pretty long time, but it's Modi who's made it a political agenda by, you know, by tom-toming the fact that India is now the fifth largest economy, um, that it's going to be the third largest economy. So I think one of the reasons why Modi wins both on economy and welfare is, is, I mean, it's not that he's bad at it, but it's part of a general trend in India in the last decade or two. But Modi is the only person who's been able to politically market this, that if you see welfare schemes, you see his photograph on it. I live in India, I got a vaccine certificate, it has Modi's photograph on it. So the change is, is real, right? I mean, almost a billion Indians were vaccinated, but Modi's political talent is to take sole credit for it. I think, yeah, that's correct. I mean, I think to the extent that he's an anti, uh, he, he, he doesn't not just like to share uh, credit, but he's also kind of anti-institutional. Uh, this sounds paradoxical, but uh, one of the, the things that has enabled uh, this kind of direct correlation between him and and welfare, because after all, uh, the preceding decade uh, before Modi came, really the UPA government, which is the Congress-led government, actually you saw substantive rise in, in uh, not just welfare, but also rights, fundamental rights to food, to education, to information. These were like serious gains that ordinary Indians achieved. But uh, shockingly, the Congress could not uh, convert any of that uh, and also the largest welfare program in terms of uh, a guaranteed employment scheme for 100 days, all those things which were actually substantial changes in at the height of double-digit growth rates also under the Congress, the Congress could not translate that at all, partly because it was seen to be decadent, seen to be corrupt, seen to be too liberal, seen to be establishmentarian, which is exactly what Modi comes and takes over. And what he innovates is is a push towards towards digitalization and and that in a way also cuts out India's large infrastructure around welfare. So his welfare schemes are incredibly targeted. Uh, they will come, I mean, like right, right now, they will come, they will be announced in his name right before a major election and they would be about direct delivery to the person, whether it is for women who need access to cooking gas or whether it is about toilets. But the problem, and I think this will be the legacy, the problem is that these welfare schemes are not deeply institutionalized and we will see what, what comes of them, if anything, in, in, say, two years' time or in five years' time. Unlike, say, the institutional, uh, anonymous and even boring work of governance that preceded him. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. 
I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. think that India's access to Western markets and those in the Middle East where trade is worth over $90 billion could be hampered by Modi's treatment of its minority communities and its its anti-Muslim rhetoric, Shruti? Uh, I think uh, we've already seen a major controversy when uh, quite recently, because the Gulf is indeed India's uh, top five uh, uh, partners, uh, business partners, and a large number of uh, the Indian immigrant community actually lives uh, and works in, in the Gulf. But I think this is a changing story, uh, both on Ukraine, uh, since we're talking about, we'll come to, as it were, foreign policy. Uh, India, under Modi, is is trying to steer India anew uh, internationally as well. Uh, because, of course, under uh, Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, with the nuclear deal and the like, India had decidedly moved much more towards the American sphere. It, the, the, the long-standing, as it were, um, binary, the Cold War binary was no longer in operation, but also India's liberalization meant that its policies were much more aligned uh, to the Anglo-American so-called Western, uh, Western sphere. Now, it's not very clear, and those are both domestic reasons, but also international issues, uh, particularly the rise of China, which has really uh, limited India's uh, options. Though, of course, Modi makes a great virtue of saying that this is a multipolar world and India has a role to play. Uh, in my view, that uh, I think India's foreign policy options have become more limited. It's, uh, and I think India has arguably um, lost a little bit of its stature also because it's no longer seen to be the beacon of multicultural democracy, uh, which it was uh, for a good 70 odd years. So it's, it has, a, well, it's, well, it's changing. On, it's on soft, that, um, yeah, it's well, a kind on, of soft on, power thing. It's a soft, yeah, I'll just say, sorry, just to say that there's a kind of mismatch between uh, the hard politics of uh, uh, trade uh, and, and foreign relations and defense procurement, uh, which are very real issues and, 
and its soft image, what does India today stand for? There's a huge mismatch now, which is unfolding in front of our eyes. Sorry, Zephine. Well, I, I, I would disagree with um, Professor Kapila there for the following reasons. Um, I think the Nehruvian uh, foreign policy of the 50s and 60s, the post-colonial, post-independent foreign policy, placed a lot on soft power and placed a lot of emphasis on the fact that India had this moral authority uh, because it was the, you know, it was poor but democratic, it was multicultural, it was heterogeneous. And I think that the conclusion that foreign policy elites of all parties have come through, not just the Congress, uh, the BJP today, but even the Congress, is that that has proved to be a failure, that that did not yield practical benefits to India in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, in fact, to survive, India had to play good old realist politics by um, you know, signing a treaty with Soviet Union against Pakistan, America. Um, and so you know, since the 1990s, there's been a shift in foreign policy away from soft power um, towards an idea of hard power. And it's not clear to me that Modi's options have, have been restricted as a consequence. If you take Ukraine, for example, Modi has positioned himself as a kind of arbiter between the West and, and uh, Russia, right? And it's not clear to me that either relationship has been threatened because of India's position on, on Ukraine. And once again, this is not just Modi's particular view on Ukraine on siding with Russia. Um, the Congress party, most parties in India agree with this point of view. Um, yes. And also on the question yes. of, uh, uh, let me finish please, on the question sure, sure. of whether, um, um, you know, the, the treatment of Muslims within India uh, has, um, uh, has impacted India's maneuverability with Muslim countries in the world, I'm not so sure because I think on foreign policy, uh, Modi is quite pragmatic, you know, he's gone out of the way to cultivate relations with Iran, with Saudi Arabia, with Qatar, with UAE, but um, Professor Kapila is absolutely right that uh, once in a while, um, you know, speaking in two voices, one domestically and one internationally, does catch up with Mr. Modi. Um, in recent times, a member of Modi's own political party said derogatory things against the um, Islamic prophet, and many of these Muslim countries protested. Um, Modi had to make the rare move of actually suspending that particular member of his party. So once in a while, it does catch up. I agree with Professor Kapila on that. But in general, I would say that uh, India's maneuverability under Modi foreign policy-wise has actually increased or certainly has not diminished. Okay, I would, I would disagree because not simply because of domestic uh, reasons and the double speak on, uh, on multiculturalism. And we can argue till the cows come home whether soft power matters or did not matter in the 60s, 70s and 80s. This is a major debate in history, whether, uh, but I will park that. But I think what, uh, what, uh, what I think uh, is, is worth saying is really the China question. And of course, um, India historically has been an ally or friend of, of the Russians. And, and, you know, something like 80 percent of its defense procurement came from Russia and has now come down to 60 percent. Uh, but, you know, but, and, and, and it cannot in a way just take a position uh, on Ukraine, which 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 just kind of um, because the Ukrainian crisis may be a European crisis, but it has absolutely Asian ram ramifications because it is actually about China. 
This is not simply about Russia. It is the fact that China has made huge incursions into Indian territory, much more so than in the Nehru era. And because it is no longer a conventional war like in 1962, which India lost, but that there has been an infrastructural, uh, uh, you know, incursion into the Indian, in, into the in, into the Indian territories in the Himalayas. And India has, uh, you know, India has. The idea was that if, if, the idea was so. What strategic uh, 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 experts said that the idea was that India would gain some maneuverability with China by, as it were, keeping its powder dry or taking this uh, so-called uh, mediator position. Uh, in this in this war, I'm not sure if it has come off, to be honest, uh, because uh, we have seen very little from the Chinese end on India. Uh, you know, in, in, in India, in fact, went uh, to the Shanghai Co Cooperation uh, meet quite recently, and I think this is really the true story. The story might look appear about Russia. It might even appear about Israel, which we have not mentioned because India has gained a lot of traction and relationship with, with Israel. But it's also galling and telling that India does not have a sitting ambassador from America for now 20 months. Now, if that is not an, a snub, I don't know what is. Uh, so I think India will find it quite difficult uh, to uh, to maneuver the post-Ukraine world order in which China may be degraded today or we don't know what China is doing. And I think to make such a virtue out of it is actually spend doctrine, nothing more. President Biden has made a priority of engaging early with, with India as, as part of the quadrilateral security dialogue known as Quad, which observers see as an effort to counter China's influence. But Biden's also made a defence of liberal de democratic values a central pillar of his foreign policy agenda. With India's uh, kind of illiberal slide, do you think it makes it a less attractive partner in America's strategic competition with China? Or is India just too valuable to be called out? Vinay? So I think there are two parts to the answer, um, Kavita. One is that the illiberalism under Modi is a complicated one. At one hand, definitely uh, counter-majoritarian institutions are under stress, no doubt about it. But in India, historically, counter-majority institutions have always been under stress when you have an executive with such a large majority. So that's not a new phenomena. I think the marginalization of Muslims is a, is a new phenomena. Um, Muslim representation in legislature, in the professional class, again, that's an old problem, but it's been accentuated under Modi. I think that's a new phenomena. But on the question of liberalism, uh, let me portray to you why Modi is such a complex character. On the question of appealing to the poor and appealing to lower caste Hindus, uh, Modi has done a much better job than, than certainly his opposition and even at a historic level, right? Um, the kind of rainbow coalition you'll find of, of Dalits, um, of OBCs or middle caste, Dalits are ex-untouchables, of tribals, um, as long, um, along with upper caste Hindus is unprecedented, right? And very much um, um, that's part of why Modi wins, right? And that's what complicates this idea of Modi as just an illiberal, right? And the second thing is gender and women's participation. Um, historically in India, men and women vote uh, roughly in the same direction, though there's a gap, small gap between them. Until 2019, at the national level, the Congress got more women voters than male voters, but Modi has changed that. Um, more women voters vote for Modi than, than, than male voters. That's what makes Modi such a complex figure uh, if you try to put him in the progressive or conservative box. 
At one level, he's radical, right? Traditional Hinduism may not have allowed a middle caste like Modi, who comes from a traditional oil presser caste, into some temples, right? But here, Modi is, you know, the, the font of Hindu nationalism, right? On the other hand, you know, the treatment of, of Muslims, there's just no way to explain that away, right? There's a deliberate exclusion. I, we have enough data to know that when it comes to welfare schemes, there isn't exclusion of Muslims. But when it comes to representation, right, um, and even uh, acts of, of violence, there is a serious problem, right? That's what makes Modi complicated. And I'm, I'm uh, confused about how the American left or the American progressives who are ascendant within the Democratic Party, right, will make of that when it comes to Modi. I mean, many, many, um, you know, people from lower middle class backgrounds who have moved to the United States um, are supporters of Modi. They're not just all upper caste, right? Um, I think that's, pro that's problem number one, right? Um, the second issue is, uh, I think you're right that, um, the, the, you know, the, the human rights element of, of the Biden administration and um, the emphasis on sort of catering to a rising India to counterbalance China does cause tension, but it caused tension in this way, right? Now, I live in India, right? And everything a Democratic senator or a congressman or woman says on human rights situation in Kashmir, for example, right, or when it comes to arrests of journalists in India, are played up on the front page of Indian newspapers, right, as an example of a hostile United States of America, right? So my own sense is that the, uh, even, you know, it may not be Biden saying anything, but when it comes to human rights issues, Modi plays up nationalism, right? Who are these white men to tell us what to do, right? And he's very successful at it. So that's what makes, on both those counts, the liberal question and the human rights US question, things are a little more complicated. I'm afraid I don't see them as complicated. I see them as a really masterful uh, uh, rhetorical uh, ploys because substantive freedom in India is low. It's not simply about Muslims. It is about the nature of public debate in India, whether it is newspapers, whether it is television programs, or whether it is just ordinary speech acts in public. Uh, I think that the, no one can actually say that it's the same old, same old. There is an absolutely limited sense of freedom of expression, but even just just general uh, experience of, of political freedom uh, in India. So it cannot just be dumped on the Muslim question. It is a substantive question, which is not simply about human rights, but really about effective democratic politics in, in India. Secondly, Modi has an extremely powerful media political machinery and therefore can direct the narrative more successfully, which, which doesn't mean that the opposition is doing well in countering it. It's not just down to the media. I think there has been a certain way in which he has allowed, um, Modi has in a way captured uh, the, the, the political narrative. And again, it speaks to that moment in global politics, not just against uh, 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 establishment, but also the kind of hypocrisy of liberal internationalism, which is not just unique to India, but everywhere else, post the, uh, the, the global war on terror, uh, the, the, the way in which American uh, political uh, power, soft power has denuded, uh, that is for everyone to see. There is no appetite now for, as it were, those great wars for the sake of democracy. So I think he, he plugs into that sentiment incredibly well and makes it about himself, 
uh, uh, projects that as if India is stronger. But as I said, substantively, we have no gains on China in India at the moment. You don't have a sitting ambassador in America. You could say you can do without America. Uh, you know, you could sort of play that hubristic uh, card. And as far as Quad that you mentioned, uh, Kavitha, uh, is India is a kind of quiet partner. It is it hasn't joined it militarily, and there are some military exercises, bilateral exercises going on. But the kind of um, you know loving you saw between Trump and Modi, and indeed Modi pretty much ended up campaigning for Trump. Uh, you know that is there seems to be a kind of uh, a moment of quietness, if not coldness, between the Indian American relationship. Um, Modi was far more strident in his second term against minorities. How do you see that treatment of minorities playing out now as we as as we look ahead to the third his third election, Binet? I think unfortunately uh, it will continue. I don't see I, I don't see an upside. Um, I think it will continue, which is that you know Modi's argument is when it comes to welfare benefits, I don't discriminate, but he certainly discriminates when it comes to his rhetoric. And he certainly discriminates when it comes to representation. I think that will continue. But Kavita, I think one difference between Professor Kapila and me is that um, for me, there is some, at, at the core of the Modi phenomena is something that is bottom up. It's not entirely top down. It's not that Modi wins because he captures the media, because you know Indians are fooled into voting their, against their interests. Um, because lower caste and women don't know their true interests and Modi is able to masterfully fool them. It's, that's, not like, it's, that's not true at all. Modi is a phenomenally you know, popular politician. His, public, his personal story is popular. His ideology is popular. As Professor Kapila says, popularity in India has its limits. Um, just 40% of Indians vote for Modi, but in a parliamentary first-past-the-post system, that's a lot. Um, the most popular prime minister in India, Rajiv Gandhi, got less than one in two voters, right? Um, and because there is this bottom-up element, I worry that this compact that Modi has created, which is an aggressive nationalism, um, a Hinduism that is both inclusive when it comes to Hindu communities and exclusive when it comes to Islam, and a successful welfareism, is a cocktail that has got a lot of popular support. People like it. Um, and for that reason, it'll outlast Modi. Oh, I'm, I'm going to. I, I'm not sure about that. I quite agree that uh, you know, obviously there is support for him. I, I'm not a Marxist, so I don't think people have been you know given some drug that that that, that is why they're voting for Modi. I did say that there's been a global wave against certain establishment elites, certainly the liberal establishment elite and liberal institutions uh, per se, which lost momentum globally and particularly starting with uh, with India, which Modi has, I know, in a way, um, really uh, mobilized to his uh, own advantage. I'm not sure whether the cult of Modi uh, will, uh, will allow, will transcend into, as it were, political favor for the entire uh, Bharatiya Janata Party, because what is actually happening in the Bharatiya Janata Party, in the ruling party, is that the upcoming leaders, such as the UP leader, Yogi Adityanath, who is incredibly popular, the, the, the agenda is not simply Hindu first. It is actually to kind of create a Hindu state in India. And so this is not simply about popularity or complexity of a leader. 
but the ultimate rules of India's democracy that might be up for grabs. For instance, there is now uh, there was the issue of uh, you know endorsing or introducing religious discrimination in the Citizenship Act of India, which is still you know on the books. We don't know whether it's in out, but it's not off the books. Uh, similarly, there is now an increasing demand for the Uniform Civil Code, which is to kind of take away discrimination to 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 kind of uh, ensure a, a kind of a Hindu majoritarian uniform civil code on religious personal laws. So I don't simply think that this is, oh, great uh, uh, welfare policies. Well done, Mr. Modi. Well done, Mr. Modi, for attracting a lower caste vote. I think something deeper has happened. You could say Indians have probably changed. Uh, some Indians have probably changed. They genuinely believe that a Hindu majoritarian rule is the way forward for India's identity. Having said that, this will be a very, uh, I would say, not simply toxic. This is a this is a this is a politics which is going to lead to violence. And because this is not something, uh, this is not something that most Indians would want to sign up. Just the way they did not sign up for it at the height of partition in 1947. So I think this is a dangerous, absolutely dangerous moment in India's democracy. Uh, when you say it could lead to violence. What do you mean by that? Well, I think, you know, I mean, my my work is, um, you know, my book is on how India actually changed the political language of uh, political languages of modern democracy uh, and how India departs, despite being the largest, most multicultural and with the largest welfare program, how it actually de departs from given liberal political languages from the West. And one of the profound moments for my book, my book starts with this question that in that India's uh, you know, moment of decolonization in 1947 is marked by a fratricide, by large-scale violence in which Hindus and Muslims and Muslims and Sikhs kill each other and the British are singularly spared, unlike, say, 100 years, 90 years earlier in the Indian mutiny of 1857. So what changes? So my one of my claims in the book and that I demonstrate is that political enmity in India is not really related to the idea of the foreigner. Say in the West, the immigrant, the refugee, uh, the external always becomes, is, is kind of always kind of given special status for hatred, if I can put it like that. Uh, whereas in India, hatred and hostility is, is directed towards the intimate, towards the known, towards the neighbor. And I think you are seeing that in the sense that uh, there has been a kind of change in the nature of violence. Of India has had periods of rioting in, in the 70s and 80s, which were, which were public. These are public events, so public as it were, public for, forms of violence. New forms of violence under Modi are much more mob-oriented, more asymmetrical, very much geared towards, in a way, uh, people just coming up to your to your home as a mob and killing you with no recourse even in, in terms of a street fight. Uh, so I think uh, this cannot, this you know, if you look at whether it is caste, whether it is region, uh, you know, or whether it is even the arrogance that there should be one regional language imposed on Indians. You know, Modi is returning to all the fundamental principles that brought India's hard-won independence and political settlement in 47. I cannot but think that this cannot just, you know, be just imposed on 1.2 billion people just like that because you have a charismatic man who tells a good story. I don't but buy if it. You're, if you're looking at the fundamentals of the establishment of India, and, and you both mentioned secularism, which is enshrined in the 1950 constitution. Is that now under threat? Does that look like that could be rewritten, do you think, Vinay? 
I don't think you need to rewrite it. I mean, I'm also a lawyer. Um, the you know the the you know the, the constitution is capacious enough to allow all kinds of readings. So I don't think you know I don't think for the change that you're seeing in India at the moment, a formal rewrite of the constitution is required. Uh, but I'm going to give you just a small example of just how different is the attitude of Nehru in 1950 and Narendra Modi today. Um, one of the you know big uh, important ancient temples of India was Somnath. Um, and um, it had been destroyed um, earlier by Afghan invaders. Um, you know, how much uh, the extent to which it destroyed the Hindu psyche is up for debate. Um, but it was a political project um, soon after independence to rebuild it. Um, and Nehru was very insistent that it doesn't happen with government money. He said, look, you know, government shouldn't be getting into the business of rebuilding temples. And he refused to go for the inauguration of it. Ultimately, the president of India went, but Nehru refused to go. Um, cut to the last few years, um, arguably the most important Hindu temple in India, the Kashi Vishwanath temple, was rebuilt with government money. And it was inaugurated by Narendra Modi through a Hindu ritual, right? Um, last week, I went to one of the 12 most important temples in India, which is the uh, Mahakal Temple in Ujjain in northern India. Uh, Narendra Modi has paid for a massive renovation of the temple, creating promenades, places to sit, toilets, etc. Um, what Modi is doing is not just overturning the old idea of um, the state must keep a distance from religion, but using the state to create a massive Hindu public sphere. Uh, I don't think you need to rewrite the constitution for that. It's already happened. I think I think all that you know one can't disagree with the fact that the Indian Constitution has been had 103 amendments. So what does it really stand for? Uh, it, it, but I think the basic structure of the Constitution, if it is changed, certainly in terms of if religious discrimination is introduced at the heart of citizenship, I do think then that Constitution will not be fit for purpose. Then you would not really have any constitutional norms to go by. Uh, so I think that's a minor question. I think the open the, the question that actually intrigues me looking forward and not just backwards is that the, the next generation of leadership, emergent generation of leadership in India, particularly in the, India's largest state, Uttar Pradesh, which is bigger than Brazil, uh, has a, 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 a yogi as, as a kind of a renunciate of a very major uh, Hindu sect, uh, militant Hindu sect, uh, I, I, sh I should add, who is running uh, running the government and is by you know and and you know if that person were to become the next leader of of, of India i think india will not be recognizable uh, in in the way in which at least Vinay is making it recognizable to some degree that oh you know this is the same old same old which I with just some knobs on I don't think it's the same old with knobs on and I think we India is in, in a different chapter uh, of its democracy where of course populism welfareism a strong personality cult uh, make it amenable to other global phenomena. But I think what is at stake in India is whether India is going to become a Hindu state uh, in the coming decade or not. Thank you both for such a fascinating conversation. Um, Professor Shruti Kapila and Vinay uh do check out their books in the podcast description to read about the themes we've discussed in greater depth. I'm Kavita Puri, and you've been listening to a special series, India at 75, for Intelligence Squared. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared.